Welcome to Modern Murders, a true crime podcast about murders after the year 2000. I'm your host, Ariel. This is Episode 7, The Murder of Glenn Kapitsky. Glenn Mark Kapitsky was born on July 24, 1966, in Chicago, Illinois. He was adopted by Virgil and Shirley and Vea Vega. They previously lost two children before adopting, and they cared for Glenn as their own flesh and blood. Virgil was a godly man and was very active in the church and the community. Vea Vega, which is a small town and a little bit hard to pronounce, has blue-collar jobs such as farming, cheese production, and plastic bag factories. Glenn was described by his family and friends as gentle, eccentric, and funny. As a teenager, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and received federal assistance to help pay for basic needs. He also took medication for his mental health issues, and there were no known issues of him going off of his medication. He had a historical studies degree from University of Texas and taught as a substitute teacher occasionally while working at Walmart. He was passionate about pursuing stand-up comedy and even performed in local plays. He was in one play called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. In 1996, when Glenn was 30 years old, he announced that he was going to run for the President of the United States, but later realized he was too young to run, since the minimum age requirement is 35. He later tried running for a more obtainable role as 56th District Assembly in 2000, but he did not win this election. He always had grandiose ideas that his family thought was eccentric, but they supported his pursuits anyways. Glenn lived in a split-level home with his recently rescued dog in Vea Vega, but stayed in close contact with his parents. He had car troubles often and relied on his parents to help out with rides. His mom was attending a wedding in Milwaukee when she couldn't reach Glenn for a few days. Worried about her son, she went to his house to check on him. She noticed his dog outside was visibly distressed, and the back door was locked, which was something that Glenn never did, and she found this out of character for him. On August 2, 2003, Shirley discovered the decomposing body of her son Glenn in his room. This was not only shocking, but horrifying, since he had been shot and stabbed in a vicious attack. The summer heat only increased the rate of decomposition, and he was lying face down on the floor in his room with no clothes on. Some reports say that Glenn's body had been decomposing for four days before his body was discovered. If this is true, then Glenn was killed just five days after his 37th birthday. The body was in such bad shape that the head wound and stab wounds were not determined until later by the medical examiner. The medical examiner noted that the cause of death was by the gunshot at close range and the stab wounds were post-mortem. Police later said that the gunshot hole in the back of Glenn's head was only the size of a quarter even though deer shot was used. In California, we call it buckshot, so I'm guessing that this term is used by them locally because when I tried looking on the internet, I couldn't find a specific pellet gauge associated with deer shot. I can't imagine the state of Glenn's body if the police couldn't determine that he was shot initially. 
Glenn had a gunshot entry hole to the back of his head with an exit wound to the front of his head, and he was stabbed twice in the back and once in the heart. Glenn was stabbed so hard post-mortem that the knife penetrated his spine. This attack seemed very personal in nature, and there was no mention of DNA that was present on Glenn's body when they examined it. It was odd that he would be awoken from his sleep and murdered naked, so examiners wanted to rule out sexual assault. The house was untouched, with no fingerprints, no shoe prints, or hair, and the only thing that could not be found were Glenn's keys. There were no obvious suspects to police, and after a few months, the murder case was starting to go cold. Meanwhile, Glenn's family buried him at Wolf River Cemetery in Winnebago County. His father, Virgil, would later die in 2008 and be buried next to his son. Five months after Glenn's murder, police were taken off guard when a young woman came forward to say that she knew who killed Glenn. She claimed that her friend confessed to her and that she was concerned for his safety and that he may be a danger to himself. Police could not believe the name that came out of the young woman's mouth, and they were in disbelief. They questioned her further to get more details of her story. She told them that her ex-boyfriend, named Gary Hurt, confessed about the murder a few weeks after it happened in August. He told her that he took his dad's car and shot Glenn with a 12-gauge shotgun and then stabbed him. She said that no one believed him and chalked it up as him trying to look tough. It wasn't until later that year that he confessed again to her while they were hanging out stargazing. Still not believing her story, the police convinced her to set up a recorded call between her and her ex-boyfriend Gary to see if he would confess to the murder over the phone. During the call, Gary was able to recall details about the murder that were not made public and only someone who committed the murder would know. He also said that he killed Glenn to see if he could get away with it. Police had a huge problem on their hands because Gary Hurt was the golden boy of Vea Vega. He was a 6-foot, 4-inch, 270-pound force to be reckoned with on the football field. He was a two-time all-conference defensive lineman. He also ran track and wrestled in high school while maintaining a 4.4 GPA, and he was also the class salutorian. He was an Eagle Scout and the first in the town in 20 years. He even had close connections with the mayor, who helped him earn a few of his merit badges. Gary helped raise money to construct a welcome sign for the town of Vea Vega. His mom worked for the county while his dad worked for a local foundry. He has younger siblings that looked up to him, and he was adored by everyone around him. People, such as his 14-year-old girlfriend at the time, described him as polite and quiet. He was also a trusted and longtime hard worker at his job at Dairy Queen. Out of the small town of 1,800 residents, Gary was on his way out to a bigger and better life. He had his whole life ahead of him and was even awarded a college scholarship to St. Cloud State University in Minnesota in his senior year of high school. What did he want to study there? criminal justice. Another detail that police couldn't understand was that Gary was only 17. How can a child commit such a vicious murder? How did Gary even know Glenn? How did the golden boy and the local loony cross paths that left one dead? 
When police dug further, they realized that Gary confessed to more people than his ex-girlfriend. He also confessed to his best friend Eric, and when police asked him about it, he told them what he knew, and that he never believed Gary to be serious. They had been best friends for six years, and Eric couldn't believe that Gary would even hurt someone. Even when Gary showed Eric an 8-inch hunting knife saying that it was the one he used to kill Glenn, he figured he was pulling his leg. Eric must have started to believe Gary when he showed him Glenn's set of keys as his trophy. Eric told police that when he and Gary were driving down Glenn Street a few nights prior, they were shining for deer. Eric knows the area well because his girlfriend lives close by to that neighborhood. So when they were shining for deer, they were taking a 500,000 candle power spotlight and shining it up and down the block, which the neighbors took note of. Gary was driving his dad's Dodge Dynasty, which is honestly one of the ugliest cars I've ever seen, and I'm sorry to anyone who has one. But I'm going to assume here that they did this for fun when they would shine for deer, and that they were doing it because the deer would freeze up. I don't think they were necessarily going out and shooting and killing the deer. Gary confessed to Eric that he went to Glenn's house, parked the Dodge down the street, and snuck in to kill him after finding him naked. When Gary was confessing to his friends about the murder, the motive at the time was that he wanted to get away with it. Maybe because he was into criminal justice, he felt that he knew a lot more than the police and was able to outsmart them and commit the perfect crime. Police arrested Gary on January 29th at his high school the day after he got that college scholarship. When they searched his parents' house, they found Glenn's keys and two shotguns in the basement. These guns were later determined to not have been the gun that was used in the murder, and police were never able to find that gun. Police confiscated the 8-inch hunting knife and tested it to confirm that it was forensically tied to Glenn's murder, and it still had traces of Glenn's blood on it. Gary's bail was set for $400,000, and the judge felt the need to set a high bail because Gary had been talking to his younger girlfriend about committing suicide together, and the judge felt that she might be in danger if Gary's out on bail. Gary was defended by Gerald Boyle. If you are a diehard Dahmer geek, then this name should ring a bell, because the same defense attorney also defended Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay, so you think that's the weird part? It's about to get a lot weirder. When confronted with all of the evidence against him, Gary told detectives a very interesting story that took everyone by surprise. He told his story a few months after his arrest. The details are also a little inconsistent here, so I will give you all the details that are out there about Gary's account of what happened. This story was later told again in an ABC interview with Cynthia McFadden, According to Gary, he was laying on his or his dad's car under a bridge and listening to Nirvana when Glenn drove by and stopped to talk. Some reports say that it was near a boat dock. Gary says that he was already drunk and had 15 shots of vodka and six malt drinks by the time that Glenn showed up, so he says that he was very drunk at that time. While talking about football, the conversation became more flirtatious and Glenn asked Gary if he wanted to come back to his house. Gary followed Glenn back to his house, and the two engaged in consensual oral sex. 
Gary left afterwards, and it wasn't until he sobered up after taking a nap in his car that he became enraged at what he had done and drove back to Glenn's house later that day to kill him. Gary told police that he usually got homosexual urges when he drank, but that Glenn was the first person he ever attempted to try anything with. When he got to his house, he instructed Glenn to lie on the floor and then shot him in the back of the head point blank. He then stabbed him so hard that the knife became stuck in one of Glenn's bones. To get the knife out, Gary had to use both hands to pull out the knife to keep stabbing him. In October 2003, Gary first pleaded guilty to first-degree intentional homicide, but later claimed insanity. Some reports say he claimed insanity in August 2003, so I don't know the exact dates without the court documents. After two hours of deliberation, the jury rejected his plea for insanity. On March 17, 2005, Gary was sentenced to a mandatory life sentence with the eligibility of parole in 32 years in prison because Wisconsin does not have the death penalty. Gary will be in his 50s when he is eligible for parole. Before his sentencing, Gary spoke about what he thought was his worst crime. He said that he can't feel guilty for what he did to Glenn because another person inside him did it. In an ABC interview, Gary had a distorted view of what he was doing. He claimed he did it impulsively out of rage because to Gary, a homosexual act is worse than a murderous one. According to prosecutors, Gary concocted a, quote, gay panic story to lessen the severity of his crimes and cold motives. Neither the prosecutors nor Glenn's family believed that he was secretly gay. Yes, he was odd, but his parents never suspected him as being gay. Gary's defense, however, say that they do believe his story and that he was polygraphed and shown to be telling the truth. I don't know if the polygraph was done by the defense team or the police, but I'm going to guess that it was the defense team, and they did it in an attempt to prove his story is true. During the trial, a few of Gary's friends testified about who he was as a person, and the golden boy wasn't so golden to everyone. Stories of Gary torturing and killing small animals surfaced in testimonies. Some people said he liked to kill small animals with his car and bragged about it. Later in an ABC interview, Gary admitted to these claims and clarified that he didn't have any guilt for killing little animals because he figured he was doing them a favor. I don't really know what that means to him, but it sounds really sick. During the trial, Eric testified against Gary and spoke about their friendship. He said that it had become strained over the years, and Eric was described as being a smaller kid than Gary, with mediocre grades, and people felt that Eric piggybacked off of Gary's success. I don't think that's fair to say that Eric was only Gary's friend because of his success, because Eric decided to stick with Gary even after he admitted to murdering someone. So in my opinion, based on what I've read, it seems like Eric is a very loyal friend to Gary. Eric could not recall at any time that Gary showed signs of homosexuality or even questioning his sexuality in their six-year friendship. If Gary was gay, then he kept that aspect of his life secret from Eric and his family. 
When asked if he thought Gary was gay, Eric testified that he did not believe it based on what he knew about his friend. Prosecutors and psychologist James Arbentrout spoke on Gary's mental state when committing the crime, and it was his professional opinion that Gary knew what he was doing and what he intended to do. Sheriff's Captain Steve Verweil believed that Gary did this to see if he could get away with it. He saw it as a challenge and was fueled by arrogance, in Steve's opinion. Gary did not testify at his trial, and I'm not surprised that he didn't. Maybe the judge also had a small-town way of thinking, but in my opinion, he went a little easy on Gary. He said this was not a horrendous crime, and he even said that Gary has a good heart at times. He did throw a little bit of shade and said that he believes that Gary has an inferiority complex and that he isn't sure if he'll ever have remorse for his crimes. But prosecutors were surprised that the judge gave him the eligibility of parole. Gary did apologize for his actions, but not to Glenn's family. Gary apologized to his own family for putting them through the trial. His parents are convinced of the story that he's telling and say it was very difficult for him to tell this story since he was facing a life sentence anyways. According to Gary's mom, she believes that her son was a victim as well and that Glenn manipulated her son. She is quoted as saying, Glenn Kapitsky lost his life but went to a better place, but Gary lost a promising future as Glenn Kapitsky took his innocence. Now, I don't like this quote from his mom um, because I think it's in denial of what her son did. So let's say that there was consensual sex and I can see her saying, well, you know, he's an older man. He took advantage of him. But having consensual sex does not give a pass for killing someone. Glenn's mom, Shirley, has a heart of gold because she was able to stay strong through the trial and accepted the judge's ruling saying that she is satisfied that Gary will be behind bars and even supervised if he's ever let out on parole. She feels that enough was done to get justice in the case and able to move on from it. Up until the end of the trial, neither parent believed that Glenn was gay, not because they would be ashamed if he was, but that he never showed signs or behavior. Glenn was very close with his supportive parents, and they believe that he wouldn't keep a secret like that hidden for so long. Gary tried appealing his conviction to the Second District Court of Appeals in October 2006, but this was denied. So those are all the details regarding this case that I could find from public sources. I want to go into what I think about this case a little more and go over some of the details that I found to be unresolved. First off, I don't believe this is a case involving the LGBTQ community, although it still brings up the issue of the gay panic story. In past cases, there have been people resorting to this type of explanation for their brutal crimes. I don't believe that Glenn was gay and that this was a gay panic story, but I'm also not 100% convinced that Gary isn't gay. The reason being is that I find his story to be oddly detailed. In his story, he put himself in a very sexually submissive role and said it was consensual and went along with it. He didn't say that he was being taken advantage of because he was drunk. He just said that he was drunk and that's what allowed him to be able to go through with this. 
usually with gay panic stories, it starts out with the victim coming on to the murderer who is an unwilling participant or someone who finds out that the woman that they're with is anatomically male. I do believe that Gary was questioning his sexuality and at least bisexual. I would hope that the police would have a cyber investigator be able to see if Gary had been looking at gay porn previously, and this never came up in his defense to prove that he was or wasn't gay, so I assume that the content doesn't exist in his digital footprint. If sex between Gary and Glenn did not happen, it is odd that Gary would confess to this type of story. Maybe it was part of his plan to fool everyone into thinking that this was an impulsive crime and not a thought-out one. If he put himself in what he thought as a shameful position, then maybe people would believe it because who would do that, right? But he was also into criminal justice, so maybe he thought that if he came out with a story that was unbelievable, something that never would somebody confess to, then maybe people would just believe it. Another detail I found odd was that Glenn's car was really unreliable and he had to rely on rides from his parents. If his car wasn't working during the time that his mom was away in Milwaukee, then how did he get to that bridge or boat dock? It seems unlikely that he would be in that area anyways, but there is a possibility that his car was working that week, so we can't really determine if that was the case. There was no DNA found on Glenn's body that concluded any sexual activity took place. I would imagine that there would be traces of DNA found on Glenn's body if there was consensual sex. The fact that he was lying face down during decomposition may have preserved any DNA from insect activity that would be on his body. This makes me think that Gary was not in the house for any extended period of time. I think he went in there, shot Glenn without any prior visits to the house, and then left. I truly believe that Gary killed him to see if he could commit a perfect murder and get away with it. Like the Austin Siggs case, Gary couldn't keep his secrets from those around him, and it was eventually his own demise. Austin Siggs was also 17 when he murdered Jessica Ridgway, and I think committing a horrendous crime very young is too much for the adolescent mind to comprehend. I think the evil catches up to them, and they eventually claim insanity, because crimes like these will haunt you. I will continue to look for crimes within the LGBT plus community, because I feel like this one was a little bit ambiguous. I know there are a lot of well-known cases, but I try to cover ones that haven't really been covered yet. I'm glad that these types of cases are getting covered to raise awareness on the violence against people within this community, and I would like to add whatever I can. Thank you for joining me for another episode. Please rate this episode to help keep what you like and change what you don't. Subscribe if you would like to get notifications of new episodes. Sources for this episode are in the show notes, and a transcript with photos is on my blog. Check out my Instagram at Modern Murders to see photos about the case. Thank you.